we have about a minute left, so uh, let's start by saying, how's everyone doing? Hey. Yeah, still doing well? Great. I'm just curious, how many were here in the last hour? Oh, awesome. How many are just joining us? Oh, great. Okay, half an hour. Perfect. Well, welcome to those who are uh, just joining us, and those of you who have been here before, thank you for enduring two hours of this uh, so early on a Monday morning. Okay, well, uh, my, by my clock, it looks like it's 9.50, so I think we're good to go. Is that about right? Um, is there anything that, uh, one of the roomies? No? Okay, great. I guess we're good to go. All right, well, friends and uh, scholars, it's tricky to see you all. Thank you for all being here. Again, thank you for those who have stayed from the first hour, and thank you for those who are just joining us for the second hour. Uh, for those who are just joining us, let me just briefly introduce myself. My name is uh, Dr. Matt Gray. I'm an associate professor of ancient scripture here at Brigham Young University. Uh, and I'm very excited to present a two-part series on a topic that has long fascinated me, a topic on uh, looking at the presence of Jews and Christians, really Christians, in first century Rome and Pompeii. I recognize that it's very early in the morning for a very historically focused lecture, uh, but I hope that this topic is interesting to you guys. Uh, again, for those of you who are just joining us, what's up? Okay, so for those who are just joining us, I'm just going to briefly, um, I just wanted to briefly mention uh, a little bit of the context and background for this uh, two-part series of lectures, because I recognize that this topic can seem a little bit esoteric, uh, it's pretty specialized for those who like ancient Rome and those who like early Christianity. Uh, the origin of this two-part lecture series actually started uh, early 2020. As some of you might remember, the Leonardo Museum in Salt Lake City had a marvelous display of artifacts on loan from the Naples Archaeological Museum, highlighting all sorts of wonderful discoveries made at Pompeii that uh, first century Roman city that was destroyed uh, when Mount Vesuvius erupted and buried the city in a ton of ash. Uh, and in our recent centuries, have been able to excavate and there an entire Roman city emerges from the ashes. Remarkable archeological site. And we were very lucky uh, right at the beginning of the COVID uh, era to have that wonderful display of artifacts at uh, the Salt Lake Museum. Unfortunately, uh, like with so much else, COVID disrupted the, the display. But before that happened, uh, the museum uh, commissioned a series of lectures from local scholars on various aspects of Pompeii that might be interesting to the local community. And so these two lectures, last hour's lecture on the presence of Jews in early, in first century Rome and Pompeii, and this follow-up lecture on the presence of early Jesus followers or early Christians in first century Rome and Pompeii uh, were both originally designed for that public outreach lecture series to accompany the Pompeii display of uh, artifacts at the Leonardo. So uh, even though this has been now delayed a year and the museum no longer has that display, um, I hope that the topics are still interesting to you, especially if you've been to Rome. Based on the count last hour, it seemed like many of you have been to Rome, so I hope that this is a fun uh, review of your travels there and maybe even highlighting some things that may or may not have been obvious to you when you went to Rome and, and Pompeii. Uh, for those who are interested in going to Rome, I hope that this uh, encourages you to take that opportunity at some point when it's safe and, and available. Uh, and even for those who are interested in simply the second half of the New Testament, those who are interested in the establishment of early Christianity in the Roman Empire, 
for the beginnings of the Jesus movement in the Roman world, uh, this lecture is designed to just articulate a little bit of the historical and archaeological evidence that can give us some insights into what it was like to be a Jesus follower. Uh, some of our early sisters and brothers in the faith uh, who were there in first century Italy. What was that like and what can we say from a historical and archaeological perspective? <clears throat> okay. So to begin, uh, obviously we're going to uh, talk a lot about Christians in Rome and the possibility of Christians in the Pompeii area as well. But like we did last hour, I wanted to do just a few minutes of historical background to get the larger picture of early Christian origins at the beginnings of early Christianity, uh, to get a feel for what the earliest Christian community was like. And then once we have a sense of those dynamics, then we'll look specifically at Rome and Pompeii to see what we can say, say about the early Christians in those settings. So to begin, I wanted to point out that the earliest Jesus movement, uh, earliest Christianity, was an extremely diverse community. Uh, it used to be in some older scholarship that people just assumed that the only people who joined the Jesus movement uh, were the lower classes, slaves and the illiterate and so forth. And while that might be true to some degree, there were definitely lower class uh, you know, slaves and working class, illiterate women and men who followed the, uh, Jesus and the early disciples. Uh, what we are now finding is that the, Jew the Christian, early Christian community was by far more diverse and included the following. First, you can see here on the list, it included Jews. Don't forget that the earliest Christian communities were in fact Jewish. Right? There were Judeans, ethnic Judeans, who had grown up in a Jewish world, who were religiously Jewish, but who in those early days found themselves following Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. The earliest Christian communities were Jewish. That included ethnic Jews, but it also included a few Gentiles who had converted to Judaism called proselytes. Right? Proselytes, in the second half of the New Testament, letters, travels of Paul, book of Acts, Proselytes are those Gentiles, whether Greeks or Romans, who found themselves attracted to the God of Judea, uh, converted fully to Judaism uh, through circumcision if they were men, through dietary kosher laws, through Sabbath keeping, and so forth. And some of those proselytes also joined the early Christian movement. So we have ethnic Jews who followed some who followed Jesus. We have some proselytes, those who converted to Judaism who followed Jesus. And we have God-fearers who follow Jesus. God-fearers is a second category of Greeks and Romans who were attracted to the God of Israel, who found themselves interested in the religion of early Judaism, but who were not full converts, right? They probably did not fully keep kosher or fully keep Sabbath laws, and if they were men, uh, it may have been the circumcision requirement that prohibited full conversion. Uh, and the other like, ah, oh, no, I'm really interested in reading Torah, but I'm not interested in the knife. Um, and so, but in any case, these are some of the different groups who were part of the larger Jewish community who created the foundations of early Christianity. Earliest Christians were Jews. But by the time of Paul and the second half of the New Testament, as you guys know from your personal New Testament studies, uh, membership in the Jesus movement had opened up to non-Jews as well. So by the time of Paul and his successors, we had Greeks and Romans who never did convert to Judaism, but who found themselves hearing the message of Jesus and joining with the early Jesus movement. So these are both, uh, this is all part of that diversity ethnically of the earliest Christian community, but also social diversity existed within the early Jesus community. 
Indeed, there were slaves who joined the church. There were working class families who joined the Jesus movement. But there were also soldiers, women, both lower class and upper class. There were elites, including entire elite households, who end up becoming early Christian. So ethnically and socially, this is a very diverse group um, in the Roman world. Now, in the time of the New Testament, of course, this is always a small minority group. This is never a massive, huge movement at the time of the New Testament. It's not until centuries later that Christians become any kind of majority. But in the first century, that small ethnic and social minority group, um, it was just fascinating uh, diversity and dynamics. The other uh, kind of background, I just want to hit a few things just to kind of uh, paint a picture for you of what it was like to be an early Christian. And, and I said, then we'll go to uh, Roman Pompeii. So in addition to the ethnic and social diversity of earliest Christianity, I also wanted to point out just a little bit of what it was like to gather as early Christians. This is long before the Christian community had the resources or the social standing to build large churches. That would not happen for a few centuries. Instead, the earliest communities of Christians found themselves meeting in what we today call house churches. Meaning that when a wealthy member, uh, individual would convert to Christianity, that person could open up their home to a group of about, you know, somewhere between 20 to 50 believers in the neighborhood or in the city. And maybe once a week, those believers could come to that home, and whoever owned the home was the, the patron of that small group of Jesus followers who met in that house church. They would meet in, um, they could meet in the atrium. This is a typical Roman home in a fairly wealthy Roman setting. And let's say the member of this, the owner of this home, this household, uh, became a Christian. Well, every week they could open up their atrium to 20 to 50 believers. They could gather in here and they could even dine in some of the dining rooms and they could have uh, scripture reading together in this home. They could pray together in this home. They could sing some early Christian hymns or maybe even some psalms from the Hebrew Bible. In this home, they could pray together. They could give each other sermons and talks in this group of 20 to 50, right? Much smaller than this group here, of course. Um, and then, of course, they could dine together. Right? They could retire to one of these dining rooms. They could have a meal together as a community of believers once a week. And usually it's in that dining setting that they would have their version of the Eucharist. Uh, some bread and wine in remembrance of when Jesus gathered with his followers uh, years ago. And it's going to be in this setting that the earliest Christian leadership structures begin as well. Usually the owner of the home was the leader of the house church, whether it be a man who is often called a deacon, or whether it be a woman, who is often called a deaconess. Uh, both men and women could be patrons of local Christian house churches. And in these house churches, according to the letters of Paul, uh, the charismatic gifts could flourish. Some could speak in tongues, and some could prophesy, and some could heal, and some could reveal, and some could teach. And very exciting, uh, dynamic, small groups of believers scattered throughout the empire, uh, growing throughout the first century. Well, I just wanted to kind of paint those pictures for you, just give you a sense of what it was like uh, in the community, what it was like in their meeting places. And then finally, before we look at Rome and Pompeii in particular, I wanted to give you a sense of what it was like for this early group of Jesus followers to be a cultural minority group. You know, in the last hour, we talked about Jews in the Roman Empire and how Jews scattered throughout the diaspora in these Roman cities were an ethnic minority group with all the dynamics socially that went along with that. Well, early Christians were a cultural minority group. Okay? They were kind of diverse in their ethnic background, but culturally, they were just odd 
in Roman cities. Most people did not fully understand Christians. They thought Christians were weird. It was totally unlike uh, the traditional state religion of the Roman Empire. Uh, and this is kind of what it sounded like. You know, today, in, in the, in the growing up in a world that is majority Christian and has been for centuries, it's hard for us to remember or imagine a day when being a Christian meant you were an odd minority group. Right? But that's exactly what early Christians were. Uh, they were a group who believed that the Judean God, remember Judea was a small backwater province in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Christians were saying that the God of that small backwater province, God of Judea, had a son. And that that son brought salvation to the world through crucifixion, through being crucified as an enemy of the Roman state, and we worship the crucified son of the Judean God. That sounds a little odd if you think about it in a first century Roman context, right? Very different than what we're used to as modern day Christians. Yeah, brother, real quick, what do you got? Uh, we're very aware of what it means to be a small, strange minority in a large group. Sure, yeah, Lanny Saints have a sense of that, don't they? Yeah, great, so that gives us a kind of an interesting connection to relate to our early Christian uh, sisters and brothers. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Um, so as a result, uh, just like in the last lecture, where we saw uh, an odd relationship between Jews and Romans, there was obviously tension between Romans and early Christians as well. In some cases, in some areas, Christians could acculturate fairly well, but in other areas, there was a lot of what's called dissimulation. They weren't understood, they were treated well, they were socially marginalized. Even though there were some wealthy folks among them, they just were not understood. And you can kind of imagine that. To join the early Christian church in the first century Roman world meant that you were abandoning the gods of your family. To join the Christian movement literally meant you had to tell your family, I am no longer going to worship our ancestral deities. You had to tell your neighborhood, I am no longer going to worship our neighborhood or our city deities. Instead, I am going to worship the crucified son of the God of Judea. That, that sounds odd, and it made for a really awkward, tense social circumstance. Right? Uh, as a result, early Christians were often charged of being atheists. And by atheists, meaning you no longer believe in the recognized gods of the Roman world. That brought further marginalization among early Christians. Simply put, this was a group that was not well understood, they were not well trusted, and they were not often very well integrated into the Roman world. Being an early Christian in the Roman Empire would have been challenging, which makes their faith all the more inspiring and interesting as modern Christians looking back on the experience of our sisters and brothers in the first century Roman world as a cultural minority group. Now, before we look at uh, historical, legendary, and archeological evidence for Christians in Roman Pompeii, I do want to point out one cool artifact that kind of bridges the gap between the picture of social marginalization that I just painted for you and the actual artifacts in Rome. And this artifact that kind of bridges the gap between those two is a fascinating graffiti, or graffito, singular graffito, uh, that was found in Rome that shows how odd it would have been to proclaim the Christian message in the Roman Empire, at least in the early part of the Roman Empire. This particular graffito, you can see the original artifact here on the right, kind of hard to make out, but this is a plaster, a piece of a part of a plastered wall that was discovered in the slave quarters of the Palatine Hill in Rome. So the Palatine Hill in Rome, uh, as many of you know, is where the imperial palace was. So the emperors of Rome had their palace on the Palatine Hill overlooking the Roman Forum, and in the lower levels of the imperial palace were the slave quarters. 
Well, many, many years ago, uh, excavations in the slave quarters of the Palatine Palace in, Ro in Rome uh, uncovered part of a plastered wall that had a graffito on it, meaning slaves were writing you know, sayings and little cartoons and, and things on the walls of their slave quarters. And it turns out that probably around the second century AD, so it's a little bit after the time of the New Testament, but not too long after, um, apparently there was a slave in the imperial household in Rome that was a Christian. And other slaves made fun of him for it. And they made fun of him by drawing a little cartoon that mocked Christianity, that mocked the early Jesus movement, for how ridiculous it all sounded to Roman ears. Right? So here's the graffito. You can see the original artifact incised on plaster here. And you can see a line drawing of it that makes it a little bit more clear here on the left. And here is a transliteration and a translation of it. You can see that it's showing an individual being crucified. The individual being crucified has a donkey head. And you can see uh, an individual worshiping with an upraised hand, worshiping the crucified donkey man. And there is a, an inscription underneath the crucifixion scene. And you can see it's, it's actually a really rough Greek inscription. It's Alexamenos. That's the name of this guy. His name must be Alexamenos. Sevete, which means he worships Theon. He worships his god. That's what the inscription said. Apparently, this is one slave making fun of another slave for worshiping the crucified son of the Judean god. And what this illustrates for us is it illustrates how crazy the message of a crucified Messiah sounded in the early Roman Empire. How crazy it would have been for your neighbor to become a Christian. Uh, this actually gives a little bit of uh, visualization to the statement of Paul, who in the 50, earliest days of Christianity, says in his letter to the Corinthians, we recognize that when we proclaim Christ crucified, we recognize that this just sounds like pure foolishness to Gentiles. We recognize it sounds crazy that salvation comes to the world through the son of the Judean God who was crucified. His crucifixion in the Roman world was a form of capital punishment reserved for criminals or rebellious slaves. Right? It was a horrific and humiliating form of death. And you guys are telling me that God of Judea is going to save the world by sending his son who was crucified? It just sounds too crazy. And that's where this uh, graffito helps us to envision how exactly the message of the crucified Christ sounded so foolish to Greek and Roman listeners. Now, some of you might be interested in why the donkey head, uh, right? Why would, why would this crucified, who seems to be Jesus, why would this crucified son of the Judean God, who's being worshipped by this Christian here who's being mocked, uh, why would he have a donkey head? It seems it's because in the Roman world, we don't really know how this got started, but there seems to have been a rumor circulating in the Roman world that Jews worshiped a donkey. We don't really know where that started. It's kind of weird slander. It's a, it's a way to slander an ethnic minority group, right? We all have misunderstandings of the ethnic minority groups that live in different parts of the world. And apparently that's how some Romans view Jews, as well, yeah, don't they worship a donkey? So the way that you make fun of someone who's worshiping the son of the Judean God who had been crucified is you draw the son of the Judean God as that of the donkey head being crucified, and it just, you, know, you make fun of your fellow slave who's doing this, right? So anyway, just wanted to point that out. It's a fascinating artifact uh, that last I was in Rome, and it has been a few years since I've been able to go for various reasons, uh, was still on display at the museum at the Palatine Hill in Rome. Okay, so in other words, if you were to go to Rome and go to the forum, uh, you pay a couple extra 
heroes, and you go up to where the Palatine Hill was, so you can see the remains of the ancient imperial palace. Uh, and there, up, up there on the Palatine Hill, where the palaces once were, is a small museum, and that's where you can see that artifact. So it's kind of fun. Here we go to Rome. Make sure you, you try tracking down if it is still on display. A fascinating glimpse of how Christianity was viewed in the first century world. Okay, so with that, now let's go to Rome and Pompeii. So now that we have a sense of what it was like to be Christian, uh, we have a sense of what it was like for them to gather, and we have a sense of how they were perceived by the majority community that surrounded them as real oddballs, uh, now we can turn to Rome and Pompeii and ask, well, what do we know about the presence of early Jesus followers in those two locations? Well, to begin with uh, Rome, uh, this harkens a little bit back to the last lecture we gave that uh, reminded us that, remember, Jews had been in Rome since at least the second century BC. Right? We talked about how for about 150 years before Christianity, there was already an ethnic minority community of Jews in Rome, uh, and they, some came there because of trade, some there came there because of immigration, some came because of slavery, and some were brought as slaves, as we saw last hour, and some were brought as diplomatic relations. Well, as far as we can tell, now the evidence is very slim, so we're, we're, we're having to extrapolate on not a lot of great data here, but we have enough evidence to suggest that it seems that by the middle of the first century AD, so within a decade or two of the time of Jesus, at least some of those Jews in Rome had themselves started to believe in Jesus as Messiah. Probably not many, but some. Uh, and we get hints of this even in the book of Acts. For example, you might remember in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, right, only 50 days after the resurrection, that there were Jews from all over the Roman world who came to Jerusalem to worship at the Pentecost festival. Right? And that's when there was the outpouring of the Spirit uh, with Peter and with some of the early disciples. And you have to tell them to remember that from Acts chapter 2. Well, some of the diaspora Jews who were in Jerusalem on pilgrimage, Acts chapter 2 verse 10 says that some of them were from Rome. So apparently some Jews on pilgrimage to Jerusalem from Rome would have seen the events of the day of Pentecost and would have returned and probably told some neighbors about it. So it's possible, I don't know for sure, but it's possible that those pilgrims coming back to Rome and their neighbors are saying, hey, how was the pilgrimage to Jerusalem? Like, wow, it was fascinating. Let me tell you what I saw there. So there were like these groups of illiterate Galileans who started speaking Latin, and like it was really wild, right? Like, let me, oh, what are they I think they were Jesus followers. Like, so you can imagine some early conversations happening within the Jewish communities in Rome, but we don't really know much more beyond that other than by the time of the 40s and 50s AD, some of those Jewish communities in Rome have now started to believe in Jesus. And probably a pretty small group, but at least there were some. So by the mid-first century in Rome, there are some Jesus followers. Now, uh, this is a picture of the Roman Forum. Okay, these are all the imperial monuments. There's the Palatine Hill, where the emperor had his palace up here. Here's the Via Sacra that we talked about last time. There's the Senate House over here. Um, that's just downtown Rome. The earliest Christians in Rome, though, again, seem in this case to mostly have been among the lower working classes. So when we envision the earliest communities of Christians in downtown Rome, we should probably not envision wealthy homes, like we might elsewhere in the empire, but it seems that in Rome itself, those small groups of Jesus followers were probably restricted to meeting in lower class urban housing, like Roman apartment complexes. 
uh, some of which actually survive. If you go to Ostia, which is a great Roman city, ancient Roman city, just to the north of Rome, uh, it's kind of the Pompeii of that part of, of Italy. It's really cool, and very few people go there, which is unfortunate. Uh, you can still see multi-level apartment complexes uh, from the early Roman Empire, and these are cool because that, those are, that's what you see here. These are a reminder of the types of social settings in which the earliest Christians in Rome probably met. They're not wealthy, they're probably meeting in second or third story apartment building. Okay, but those are, that's, those are just kind of our basic sense, our basic guess of what the earliest days of Christianity in Rome were like. Uh, so now let's turn to the New Testament for a few minutes to ask, well, what are the earliest stories about Christians in Rome that we know? Well, the earliest direct story about a Christian going to Rome and interacting with other Christians in Rome come from the journey of Paul at the end of the book of Acts. So in Acts chapter 26, 27, and 28, we are told that Paul, who's spent so much of his life in ministry in the Eastern Mediterranean, between Judea, Syria, Asia Minor, and Greece, those are the areas where Paul mostly spent his travels, uh, by the end of his ministry, Paul decided he wanted to sail from Judea across the Mediterranean, and he wanted to make his way to Rome so that he could testify of Jesus before Nero. There is a man of some goals, right? He wants to testify before the Roman Emperor Nero. Uh, and as he's getting ready to go, uh, because he has never been to Rome before, and there already is a small Christian community in Rome, Paul writes a letter to introduce himself and his theology to the Christian community in Rome, and that is the letter to the Romans. In the letter to the Romans, Paul is writing a letter to a community that he did not found, that he has not yet met, but he's writing to introduce himself and his thinking, and to say, basically, I want to get to know you guys, I want to spend time with you guys in Rome, uh, so that I can eventually go on a mission to Spain using Rome as the launching pad. Right? And so, uh, clearly by the end of his life, Paul had his mind fixed on Rome for various purposes. And the book of Acts tell us the, tells us the story of Paul making his way to Rome. So between the book of Acts and the letter to the Romans, we get kind of these cool glimpses into what that community was like. In fact, uh, in his letter to the Romans, uh, both in chapter 1 and in chapter 16, Paul says hi to a few people that he has either heard of or has met in his journeys that live in Rome. And those greetings in the letter to the Romans are actually really interesting for social history to get a sense, he says, to all God's beloved in Rome. This is written around in the late 50s AD. So there's a small community of God's beloved in Rome who are called saints. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. I thank God through Jesus because I've heard about your faith. I've heard that you are wonderfully dedicated Christians in a very difficult social environment. So let me introduce myself and let me get to know you. At the very end of the letter, chapter 16, he says, by the way, I do know a few people who, uh, who have made their way to Rome. Say hi to my friends. Say hi to Prisca and Aquila, uh, this wife and husband team who seems to have run a house church there in Rome, uh, who have worked with me in the past. They've relocated to Rome, and a church now meets in their house. Uh, say hi to those guys. Uh, say hi to Andronicus and Junia, my relatives. What does that mean? Are these cousins of Paul? We don't really know. Uh, but they were prominent among the apostles. Here we have a, a man and a woman, a, who seem to be a married couple, who are both considered by Paul to be divinely commissioned apostles, sent forth to proclaim the message of Jesus in the Roman world. And it's just so fun to read. Usually these are the verses that we skip in our scripture study because we tend not to like genealogies and stuff. But if you're a social historian, this is where all the good stuff is. Right? 
who all these insights into what these little house churches were like and who these people were and their names are interesting, uh, insights into their social and ethnic backgrounds. And it's just fun to see Paul try to reach out to this community of Christians in Rome prior to his journey there. Well, Acts 28 uh, then tells us the story. Paul gets on a grain ship, that's the best passage you could find, uh, sails throughout the Eastern Mediterranean and ends up making their way, they get shipwrecked in Malta, but then they eventually make their way to Sicily, right? So today you can go to Syracusa, or ancient Syracuse in Sicily, and uh, you can read a few verses from the New Testament that Paul spent a few days in Syracuse, right? Before he then gets back on the boat, and they sail um, up the Aegean, uh, and they finally disembark. Paul's journey to ancient Italy uh, really technically begins as they disembark in Pozzuoli. Uh, Pozzuoli is part of the Bay of Naples, and some ruins in Pozzuoli are still there today from around the time of Paul that give us a sense of what it was like for Paul to sail into that harbor, to disembark at Pozzuoli, uh, to enter the marketplace. You can see some of the ancient temples and market areas of downtown Pozzuoli. He stayed there for seven days, uh, Acts tells us. Uh, we'll come back to this in a second, because this is also in the Pompeii. Pompeii, you can literally see Mount Vesuvius from Pozzuoli, so this is very close to Pompeii. We'll get back to that. But he stays for seven days in Pozzuoli with a group of believers. Apparently there are some early Jesus followers in the Bay of Naples area as well. But then from there, he takes the land route from Pozzuoli up into Rome, about 100 miles uh, to the north, uh, largely on an ancient Roman road that partially still exists today called the Via Appia. One of my favorite things to do outside of Rome is to grab a uh, great prosciutto crudo and mozzarella sandwich at a deli in the morning and pack up a lunch and walk out on the beautiful Via Appia. It's the ancient Roman road that goes outside of the hustle and bustle and congestion of downtown Rome. You can see ancient Roman tombs lining the street. And this was the street that all would have walked uh, from Pozzuoli into Rome. It's a great place to eat your lunch, to read the stories of the Book of Acts, and to imagine Paul and maybe even someone like Peter coming into Rome on that very road. You'll see the wagon ruts, the ruts for the wagon wheels roads. It's a really cool place to be able to go. And then Acts 28 tells us that Paul spends the next two years in Rome, uh, probably in some of the uh, apartment complex, uh, lower class housing uh, settings, uh, meeting with local Jews, trying to you know, talk with local Jewish community leaders about Jesus and awaiting his hearing before Caesar, which the book of Acts never tells us whether or not that actually happened. But that's how, where the scriptural story ends. Unfortunately, the scriptures never tell us. Uh, the New Testament never says, did Paul get to preach before Caesar, before Nero? We don't know. There were early Christian traditions that he did, but we don't know for sure, uh, historically or scripturally. Um, we don't know, did he ever go to Spain? No, there are traditions that maybe he did, but don't know scripturally or historically so so after that two years of hanging out in rome waiting after that we really don't know what happens next there are traditions there are traditions that paul uh, does preach before nero and that he's eventually martyred in rome uh, some of you may be aware that from latin historical sources the reign of nero in the early 60s around the time paul would have been there uh, would have been uh, would have included some localized persecution against christians this is an era called the Neronian Persecutions, where uh, Nero, uh, long story, but long story short, Nero needed a small minority community who was not well understood to blame for some things that he did, like burning down part of Rome to build a palace. And so he, uh, he blamed Christians, because who cares about Christians? They're weird, no one likes them, no one understands them. And as a result, for a brief time in the early to mid-60s in Rome, 
there were persecutions uh, against Christians. Uh, tradition is that Paul was killed during those Neronian persecutions. Uh, whether or not that's actually true, probably is, but we, we, we don't know for sure, but that's not impossible. Um, there are other more implausible traditions, like if you go to a site in downtown Rome called the Mamertine Prison, uh, really kind of a cool site. Uh, there is a much later tradition that Peter and Paul were together imprisoned in Rome, and they were both executed there. Like, again, more traditional than historically founded, perhaps, but kind of a place to go. And some of my favorite places to go in Rome, uh, again, are not scripturally based or historically supportable places, but are legendary, beautiful places to, uh, to enjoy the traditions. For example, the tradition that Paul was eventually beheaded in Rome during the Neronian persecutions, and there's a church called the Church of the Trade Montane, the Three Fountains. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's a little outside of the downtown area, but it's this beautiful kind of secluded church, really beautifully kept up by the, uh, the order that owns it. And uh, the tradition was that when Paul was beheaded, that his head bounced three times. Each time his head bounced, fountains sprung up. And these three fountains are now enshrined in the church. That's the Church of the Three Fountains. This is actually the mural in the apse of the church. And you can see there's heads Paul bouncing three times at the fountains. Uh, what a cool tradition is that, right? Beautiful church. I highly recommend you go visit and just enjoy that early Christian kind of imagination. In this case, by early Christian, we mean like 5th, 6th, or 7th century. It's very, quite late. Yeah, brother, real quick. Yeah, these are Catholic churches. Beautiful Catholic churches preserve beautiful early Catholic traditions. Uh, and they're just, just a joy to, to go visit, even though historically, uh, well, probably not a bouncing head, but kind of a, kind of a cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, many of these churches do have baptismal pots. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, and of course, the most famous traditional church in Rome, dealing with the traditions of Paul's martyrdom, uh, would be the Church of St. Paul outside the walls. This is a must-see uh, if you ever go to Rome. Uh, was Paul actually buried here? Uh, again, historically, we don't know. We, you can't prove that scripturally or historically or archaeologically. There's a very early tradition that he was, and there's a beautiful church, a beautiful Catholic church that you can visit today and just enjoy and celebrate. You can see the inside of the church, the outside of the church. There's a statue of Paul, a church of St. Paul outside the walls, commemorating the traditional location of his burial. So between the scriptural accounts, what we know historically, and then later legends, these are some of the stories and some of the sites that emerge in Rome that allow us to celebrate the presence of early Christians uh, in Eternal City. Um, by the way, I should point out that if you are interested uh, in this, the, the, the topic of early Christian origins in the area, don't forget that there are a few other New Testament books that can also provide some insight into early Christian experience in Rome. We've already mentioned the letter to the Romans, so if you're interested in this topic, read Romans. That's Paul introducing himself and his theology to this community in Rome. There's the last few chapters of the Acts of the Apostles that tell the story of Paul journeying to Rome. But there's also the following. The Gospel of Mark, perhaps written in the 60s, um, might also have a connection with Rome. The early tradition is that Mark was written to early Christians in Rome who were suffering under the Neronian persecutions. And it's their version of the Jesus story that gave them comfort that Jesus suffered too. Uh, the Gospel of Mark might be interesting. First Peter uh, might be written to saints in Rome. The letter to the Hebrews might also have a connection either written from Rome or to Rome. We don't really know. Uh, it's a little vague. And the book of Revelation clearly makes connections to uh, uh, the Roman period and the saints in Rome as well. So anyway, a couple fascinating books from the, Old, the New Testament you can read just get glimpses of what the social and religious life of these early Jesus followers in Rome was like. 
Uh, I should say just really quickly before we turn to uh, Pompeii, that of course there are other early Christian traditions in Rome as well. The other towering figure in Roman tradition is of course Peter. Now the story of Peter in Rome is one that falls squarely into the legendary category because again, we have no scriptural references to Peter going to Rome or dying in Rome. And from the first century, we don't have any direct evidence of Peter being in Rome. Uh, that's not to say he wasn't there. That's not to say that he was not killed there. It is simply to say that the only evidence that we have are early Christian traditions. Those are beautiful traditions. They're fascinating. They're rich. But they're also, there are also traditions. The tradition being that eventually Peter made his way to Rome and was in the Neronian persecutions, was crucified upside down, uh, right? So that, those are all beautiful, legendary stories that may or may not be entirely historically precise. How about the Yeah, that's a great question. Let's look at that right now. So here's the legend. So the legend is that Peter was executed in Rome um, at the location of the modern-day Vatican. Okay, so St. Peter's Basilica which I'm sure you, many of you have been there. Beautiful, I mean, I, I, I have major St. Peter's on me at this beautiful location. Um, the, the, the reason why the Vatican is located there is because of an early Christian tradition that Peter was crucified upside down in a circus. Remember the Circus Maximus, right? There was another circus that would have been here by the Vatican uh, area that would have existed right here where the plaza is. And the tradition was that he was executed in the circus through crucifixion and buried uh, in a nearby tomb. Okay, so here's an, an artistic reconstruction of what this circus looked like, different than the Circus Maximus by the Forum. This is the one by the Vatican. So where the Vatican stands today, this circus would have existed in the time of Peter. So the tradition is that Peter was executed in a circus along with other Christians during the Neronian persecution, and that the nearby necropolis or nearby tombs is where his body was deposited after being executed here. There's even in that story, there's a little bit to be uncertain about how historically plausible that would be. But if you were to overlay the area of the circus and necropolis with the floor plan, the ground plan of the Vatican, then you can see the relationship. This is where the circus was. Here's where the Vatican is today. And right here, where the shrine in the Vatican is located in the apse that commemorates Peter's tomb, the tradition is that down in the necropolis, Below that, in the tombs below this, is where Peter's body was interred after being executed. Um, so is it verifiable? And the answer is not really. There are tombs down there. Uh, so if you get a special tour, you can take a tour of the necropolis below the Vatican, where traditionally Peter was interred. That's a really interesting possibility. Uh, and there are bones that have been discovered there. But as always, almost impossible to say, this is skeleton, right? It's just, Clearly, it's an a skeleton. Uh, so maybe the legend is true. Maybe it's not. We just we just have to be modest and cautious about what we claim. But in, in any case, it's a beautiful story, beautiful tradition, and it's a really cool archaeological site to visit. Just kind of connect with that tradition and the possibility that Peter, in fact, was uh, executed. See. So anyway, for what that's worth, kind of a cool part of your Roman tour. Um, now, after uh, those, of course, Christianity will continue in Rome. Christian catacombs will develop. I strongly recommend you visit the catacombs from the second, third, and fourth centuries. Beautiful early Christian art in those catacombs. Uh, some of the Christian funerary art is located in the Vatican Museum. Another must-see stop in Rome. Uh, spend time in the early Christian section of the Vatican Museum. All of these great early Christian artifacts. 
Okay, well in our last 15 or 20 minutes that we have together, uh, let's now shift from Rome down to Pompeii. So that's really all we can say about first century Rome, some cool things. Uh, down in Pompeii, down in the Campania area, is where things continue to be interesting in terms of early Christian presence. So again, about 100 miles to the south of Rome is the Bay of Naples. Right, so here is Mount Vesuvius, the volcano that will erupt in 79 AD and will bury Pompeii with ash, will encase Herculaneum with mud, and will disrupt life in the entire Bay of Naples area. Well, it's in this Bay of Naples that we have some early literary references to an early Christian community. Uh, you remember in Acts 28, when Paul was making his journey to Rome? Well, he disembarked on his ship in the Bay of Naples. And the port city that he disembarked to was Pozzuoli, right here on the north part of the, the Bay of Naples. So if you go to the Bay of Naples today, definitely take a little detour, go to Pozzuoli, and read the, the verses in Acts 28, where Paul gets off the ship, gets off the grain ship, and starts his journey to Rome. But before he goes up to Rome on the Via Appia, he stays for seven days with a small community of local believers in Pozzuoli. So what that suggests is that as early as 17 years before Mount Vesuvius erupts and buries Pompeii, there was at least one Christian community in the area. Doesn't say a lot about how big that community was. There's a lot of debate over how many Christians would have been there, but it's not impossible that by the time Vesuvius erupts, that small group of Christians in Pozzuoli could have grown to some extent into the larger Campania region. So, just like Pompeii and uh, early archaeologists looking for Jewish presence in Pompeii, so early archaeologists in this region have looked for the possible traces of Christian presence in the Bay of Naples area. Uh, and as a result, kind of like with the Jewish stuff, uh, you get some pretty sensational claims. Every now and then, if you go online, were there Christians at Pompeii? Or were there Christians at Herculaneum? You'll see some pretty sensational claims saying, oh yeah, early archaeologists found a, a, a cross. Uh, an early Christian altar in a house in Herculaneum. And you can go to that house today, it's kind of interesting, the House of the Bicentenary. Um, unfortunately, however, uh, it's almost certainly not a cross. Christians were not using the cross this early in Christian history. That would not come for a few centuries. And what you're instead looking at there are the, the remains of a bracket a system to hold up shelves, right? So uh, our imagination can get a little carried away sometimes, so don't believe everything you see online, uh, which is probably just a good rule of thumb generally. Um, but now let's turn to Pompeii. What about Pompeii? Were there Christians in Pompeii? And just like with the Jewish conversation, Jewish topic, so with the Christianity topic, there's a range of opinions. There are some scholars who say, yes, there were whole groups of Christians in Pompeii. There are crosses everywhere, if you know where to look for them. Uh, there are some scholars who say, no, nope, there were never any Christians ever in Pompeii. Okay. Uh, and as always, another real life, Let's go for the moderate view. <laughs> uh, there might not have been a massive group of Christians in Pompeii, but it's not impossible that there were some. And I think that there's enough evidence to suggest that we can at least have some intriguing conversations about what Christian life might have been like in this area. Again, you go, go on some tours, every little etching in the thing, in the wall, I think that's a cross or something. And I, I'm personally very skeptical of some of that. There's some things with many crosses. Um, for time's sake, we're getting a little bit low on time, I want to take you to what I think is by far the most significant artifact in Pompeii that relates to the question of, were there Christians there? Uh, and that is a hotel, an ancient Roman hotel 
that was located in Region 7. So this is a, a large map of Pompeii. Here's a massive amphitheater. Uh, here's all the excavated homes. It's a remarkable archaeological site. And right downtown, right near the Forum of Ancient Pompeii, this region that's uh, shaded in yellow, Region 7, is an industrial zone of Pompeii. There's bakeries, there are workshops, there are textile manufacturing locations, uh, there are brothels, there are taverns. And this is the downtown of, a, of an exciting, productive Roman city. Okay? And in that downtown area, for a lot of travelers coming in and out for business and for trade uh, at the Forum, here in this uh, square called Eleven is a hotel. And there was a hotel that was there uh, to accommodate travelers coming in. And as the hotel is like, so right down in the, there's literally the most famous brothel is right across the street. There's a tavern as part of the hotel. I mean, you get a sense of this is the racy downtown area of Pompeii. Uh, the hotel is a large hotel, has a pretty good sized atrium, about 20 guest rooms in the hotel on, on a few levels. Uh, there was a kitchen, there was food and wine storage, and there were some dining rooms including a triclinium area, a beautiful garden. Uh, so it was a cool Roman hotel, right? Kind of a type of thing you'd expect to see in a Roman city. It teaches us a lot about travel and accommodations in a Roman city like this. Uh, but here's the interesting thing about this hotel. Uh, when archaeologists in the 1860s were excavating it, they were excavating in the atrium of the hotel, and they found a graffito, an inscription, written on the wall that clearly uses the word, can you see it? Christianos. That's a Latin for the word Christian, right? Which is not what Christians called themselves. Early Christians called themselves followers of Jesus. Christians were, was a term that non-Christians called Christians, okay? So apparently there's an inscription here that uses the word Christian in a hotel, in a Roman hotel. Uh, unfortunately, this inscription was discovered in 1862 and because it was written in charcoal, and in 1862, uh, archaeological preservation techniques are not what they should have been. And so within two years, it had totally vanished. Uh, just exposed to the elements, the rain, the sun, and whatever. So the inscription is no longer to be seen. But thankfully, the archaeologists who uncovered the inscriptions immediately made drawings of it. So what we're looking at here is an 1862 drawing of the, script, the Christian inscription that was found here in this Pompeian hotel. Uh, over the years, there have been so many suggestions about what the translation is, how should we translate it. Is it like, it clearly has a reference to, to Christians, but the various translations over the years have been really odd. And as a result, the interpretation of the hotel over the years has been really odd. You might find, uh, if you type in the phrase Hotel of the Christians online, you'll find some websites that'll say that this hotel, because of that inscription, must have been an apostolic school where early Christian disciples gathered and taught others about Jesus. Maybe Paul himself taught here. Uh, and like these wild sensational claims, right? Uh, which are fascinating, but probably too sensationalistic. This, there's really no evidence that this was a Christian hotel. No evidence that Christians owned it. Uh, no, Christ, no, no, no evidence that this was a place for Christian preaching. Certainly not an apostolic school. It's fascinating as all are. The reality is, this was a normal Roman hotel. If you look at the context of the whole hotel, there are... Um, a lot of erotica, this is Pompeii, it's kind of what they do. Uh, right? A lot of erotic graffiti and images, there's traces of emperor worship. I mean, this is not going to be a Christian establishment, uh, which kind of begs the question of, well, what is that inscription doing there? What, what is it referring to? The hotel uh, has a brothel in it, I mean, it's for I mean, all the types of Roman lifestyle activities that Christian writers condemn. Well, uh, a friend and colleague of mine, Tom Lehman, 
uh, and I, uh, a few years ago, wrote an article published in the Journal for the Study of the Jesus Movement in its Jewish Setting. That's a mouthful. That's an online journal you can check out. Uh, where we looked at the graffito and the hotel to try to make sense of it. So if this is an artifact and a site that is interesting to you if you're going to Pompeii, check it out online. Uh, you can read what uh, Tom and I come up, came up with. Uh, and here's what we did. Number one, uh, my, uh, Tom, who's a wonderful epigrapher, uh, uh, gave a best translation of this inscription ever given in print. Uh, and it turns out that this inscription references a guy named Lovios, who is Audi, who's listening to Christians. And it seems like uh, other guests of the hotel are making fun of a guest named Bovios, who spent time listening to a Christian preacher in your Bible. So again, no evidence that it's a Christian-owned hotel. Instead, it's a regular Roman hotel, lots of typical Roman traffic coming in and out. But what's fascinating about this is it seems to be that uh, at least one guest spent time listening to him. And the other guests were making fun of him as shown by this little etching on the wall. Yeah, Bovios, what a dope, you know, he's listening to these Christians, and there you go. Because remember, Christian is a, is a non-Christian term for Christians in this period. Like non-believers are calling them Christians in this period. So the fact that it uses that word Christianos suggests that these are non-believers talking about Bovios listening to Christians. So our reconstruction of this fascinating artifact at Pompeii suggests that Bovios seems to have been a guest in this hotel, was being ridiculed by another guest for listening to Jesus' followers in the region. Was he listening to a Jesus preacher in Pompeii? Maybe. Was he listening to a, a preacher in Pozzuoli, where we know there was a Christian community right down the road? Maybe. Um, so, you know, a lot we don't know, but it's intriguing enough to kind of remind us that there is Christian activity in here, and that's Kind of cool. Okay. So, in conclusion on Pompeii, we're not quite done yet. We have six minutes left. But before we conclude, because I know you're probably thinking, well, that was kind of a letdown. I was coming to expect all sorts of great evidence. And the reality is, there's there's not evidence for an extensive community. But look, there is Christian presence in the area. We know that there are Judean individuals in Pompeii. We saw them last lecture. It's very possible that at least some Jesus followers could have been in Pompeii when this, the uh, volcano erupted and buried the city. How's that for historical certainty? Okay, but that's, honestly, I mean, honestly, that's where we're at. Okay, so in our last six minutes, though, uh, I want to assure you that all is not boring about this. It's not like we're going to come away saying, oh, gosh, I didn't learn anything. The reality is, um, even though we cannot prove the existence of a robust Christian community in Pompeii, maybe there were some, can't prove it, yeah. Um, nevertheless, the incredible, unprecedented excavation of the city of Pompeii can still tell us so much about the urban setting in which Christianity would emerge. Right? So even though we don't have Christian inscriptions everywhere, um, what we do have is we have evidence for what industrial uh, uh, trade facilities were like in the Roman world. Because Pompeii preserved them. You can literally go in downtown Pompeii and see textile workshops. You can see bakeries. And guess what? In early Christian literature, we are told that early Christians often met in those type of uh, industrial settings. Like members of trade guilds would often become Christians as they're working on their trade, they're working on their textiles, or they're working on their bakery, or whatever. And they're talking to their friends, hey, you know, I heard about this guy named Jesus. And as they're working, they're talking, and all of a sudden Christianity starts developing these networks among the trades. Well, if you go to Pompeii, you can see exactly what those types of facilities would have been like. 
Because I don't know if you see the nuanced difference there. We're not saying that there were Christians in these buildings. Could have been, maybe. But at least shows us the types of buildings in which Christians would have started to form networks. Right? So you can go to the textile shops. You can go to the hotels. There are early Christian uh, references to Christian missionaries coming in and out of hotels. Maybe one did come in and out of that hotel in Region 7 in Pompeii, the so-called Hotel of the Christians. That's, maybe Bovios heard him right there over dinner one night with all the other hotel guests. That's possible. But whether or not that actually happened, that hotel can still give us a cool glimpse into what the city setting would have been like for Christians to develop in a place like this. So you can go to these locations and see what downtown areas would have been like and imagine Paul, Peter, early Christian missionaries, early Christian converts. You can imagine what life would have been like for them in the workshops. You can also imagine what life would have been like in the homes. Again, even though uh, we don't know for sure that there was a Christian house church in Pompeii, we just don't have that kind of type of evidence, we have lots of first century homes in Pompeii that were just like the types of homes in which Christians would meet around the Roman Empire. So when you go to Pompeii, spend time going to these homes and envisioning what it would have been like for Christians, a group of 20 to 50 believers, to gather in a home if they had a wealthy patron who could open up the atrium, they could gather for scripture study, dine in the dining room. What would that have been like? You could go through these homes in Pompeii, it's just unprecedented how you can envision the early Christian experience. Okay, I've got uh, two more categories that I want to mention. Another one is women. Uh, in the letters of Paul, especially, we are given insights into the role that women played in early Christian community. Now again, we don't know for sure that any early Christian women were in Pompeii. Maybe there were some, we just don't know for sure. But in the letters of Paul, we see communities of house churches scattered throughout the Roman world in which women played prominent roles. Women could be leaders of house churches in the Roman world. I mean, they owned the house, and they were the ones who, who, who allowed for Christians to gather there. Uh, women could be literate in the Roman world. They could write stuff. They could be creative. They could run businesses. They could be involved in politics. These are all things that we see in the letters of Paul. You look closely for it. We have Phoebe, who's a deaconess in Greece, meaning she owns a home and opens up her home for other believers. We have Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman in Macedonia, northern Greece. We have Nympha, a woman who joined the church, who was a wealthy woman who opened up her house to the church in Laodicea. We have Priscilla, who owned a leather business at Corinth, and later became a leader of a house church in Rome. So in the letters of Paul, what I'm saying is we have prominent women being uh, having prominent roles in the communities. Turning to Pompeii, that's exactly what we see in Pompeii as well. So even though we don't know if any of these Pompeian women were Christians, we still see the same type of activities for women in the, a city like Pompeii that we see in the letters of Paul. We see women in charge of households at Pompeii, in charge of businesses. We see some women who are uh, uh, conducting scribal and artistic creative activity. We see some women who are endorsing their political candidates for office, right? Well, this is exactly the type of picture that we see from the letters of Paul regarding the role of women in the early Christian house churches. So again, Pompeii serves a really fascinating glimpse into what city life would have been like for these early people. These are all beautiful pieces of art from Pompeii showing women who are scribes, who are creatively drawing and painting, uh, who are running businesses. Women were common in the Roman world and in the early house churches as well. The final one, final category that I'll look at uh, is slaves. Uh, we know from the letters of Paul that many of these early Christian communities had slaves 
who join the church. Enslaved people who heard the message of Jesus become Jesus followers, have faith in Jesus. Uh, and even though, again, we don't know if slaves in Pompeii were Christians, maybe there were some, but we do know what slavery was like in Pompeii, and that gives us a sense of what these slaves who were Christians would have experienced. Uh, and their experiences would have been fascinating. For example, if their master was a Jesus follower, that means that every Sunday morning, a slave and a master would have been worshiping Jesus together in the same space. Talk about social, social equalization. It's remarkable in the Roman world, right? To have a master and a slave eating at the same table and worshiping Jesus and both singing songs about Jesus together. That would have been a fascinating relationship between master and slave in the Roman world. Uh, having master and slave with equal access to the afterlife through Jesus would have been a pretty remarkable uh, equalization in the Roman world. But what happened if a slave joined the church whose master was not a believer? That slave would have had a very different experience, and those experiences can be seen in Pompeii as well. Uh, that slave, even though that slave's a believer, still would have been expected to tend the household deities, offer sacrifices to Roman gods as a believer. They would have been forced to. They have no choice. They're not their own. Right? Um, many slaves, especially women, were forced into domestic sexual servitude. What would it have been like to be a woman as a believer, as a slave, who's forced into domestic sexual servitude, or forced prostitution? And then we'd be reading 1 Corinthians about the ideals of the Christian lifestyle. That's just not an option for you, to get you're a believer. What's that like for that, for that person, right? Fascinating reminders of the, the diverse, dynamic, social experiences of these early Christians. And it does give a sense, all the metaphor in Galatians, when he says, look, in the gospel of Jesus, there is no longer Jew or, free, or, or, or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. All sees the gospel message of Jesus breaking down social and ethnic barriers in the Roman world. And it's kind of fascinating to see the reality of that, of those dynamics on the ground in a city like Pompeii, which had slavery, which had ethnic divisions, ethnic minority groups. Uh, so the final slide then, uh, is uh, just a way of thanking you for, for being here, is just to say uh, that well, even though we can't prove there were huge groups of Christians in Pompeii, at the very least, we get a sense of the urban setting of the early Jesus movement. And we get a sense of what it was like to be a cultural minority community in the first century Roman world, especially in Rome and Pompeii, with the tensions of assimilation and dissimulation and the social tensions that they would have experienced. And at the end of the day, uh, uh, this is all so informing and enriching as we think about our early sisters and brothers in the faith uh, in the first century, the first century Roman world, and what it was like for those earliest believers, our spiritual ancestors in the faith, what it was like for them to live and, and navigate and negotiate these complex and social dynamics. Well, thank you very much. It was so great to see you. I hope this is interesting.